What you're about to listen to is a piece of film history. This episode's guest, Peter Lamont, was recognized as one of the world's greatest production designers, helping to design the sets of 18 James Bond movies, James Cameron's Aliens, and even Titanic, for which he was awarded an Oscar. He was known by all he interacted with for his gentlemanly demeanor, fairness to crew, and genuine creative mastery. When I recorded this episode in November last year, Peter was 91 years old, and the following month, he very sadly passed away. This podcast stands as his last recorded interview. I'd like to thank my friend and Peter's daughter, Mads, for her help in making it happen. Though I only spent a short time with Peter, I could tell that all the stories I'd heard of his kindness were true. I hope this interview does you and your family proud. Now please enjoy Lessons for Life and Stories of Hollywood from a verified cinema legend. Thank you for your time, Peter. It was an honour. Jim came straight over. He said, OK, will you? So I said, yeah, of course I will. Thinking it's Spider-Man. He said, you'll get a script at the end of the week, but don't take any notice of the title. And he said, Planet Ice. It was Titanic. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratise the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. I'm very proud to introduce today's guest. I feel humbled to be interviewing a true hero of the film industry, production set designer, set decorator and art director, Peter Lamont. Now 91 years old, Peter gained his first credits in the late 40s and 50s as a draftsman before working on classics such as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Fiddler on the Roof. It was the Bond franchise though where Peter found his home, having worked on 18 of the movies. The only one he missed during his time working was Tomorrow Never Dies. Most people would have perhaps taken a sabbatical, but no, no. Peter spent the break designing James Cameron's Titanic, no less. Jim decided to work with Peter based on their previous partnerships on none other than Aliens and True Lies. No amount of time would be long enough to talk to Peter about his career, but I'm very excited for the time we do have. Welcome, Peter. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. How does it make you feel when I list that incredible list of accomplishments from your career, Peter? <laughs> it sounds amazing, you know. I don't think of it like that. It was just, you know, how I grew up and how it all, all evolved. You know, I've been very fortunate. The lights of Hollywood must have felt a very long way from you as a young English boy. And I know your father worked in the industry. Is is that how you came into the business? Yeah, well, you see, uh, I can remember my father was a sign writer. And in those days, there were no graphic arts at all. It was all done by hand. And my dad was bloody clever. I really, you know, I really mean that. And um, we lived at that time in Borenwood. And uh, there were three studios there. And um, <clears throat> my dad went to work one Sunday. And about 10 o'clock, he came back. My mother said, I thought you were working today. He said, yeah, I was, but the bloody place got burnt down last night. And the old B&D studios, British and Dominion, got burnt down that night. As it happened, Pinewood and Denham were opening. And Teddy Keefe, who was the master painter at B&D, said to my dad, do you want to come to Denham with me? And I only, what do you believe, I only ever worked, worked there once. And that was with Carmen Denham when Disney did Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Wow. But my dad, it was, well, 200 yards away. 
and that sounds ludicrous, but um, and I do have lots of memories of it. You know, um, when I used to go to the studios, <clears throat> my dad was had a, a, a shop above the paint shop, and uh, the paint shop was down below. And I knew all the fellas there. And next door there was a place called the Pattern Shop. Well, the Pattern Shop used to do all the patterns for. They had a new. They had a, a um, an unfamous foundry there, run by. Um, what's his name? George Pottle. And I can remember going down once when they were doing, this is during the war, when they were doing one of our aircraft is missing. <coughs> and Don Harold, who was the supervisor of the um, shop next door, <coughs> was building a model of um, um, a Wellington. And it was made just like the real Wellington, you know, with the, the way Barnes Wallace had designed it. And it was how much must have been about what I don't know, three or four about four feet in um, uh, wingspan, might may have been a bit more, but it was made exactly the same as it was, so the geodetic construction. And I can remember seeing the film because when it came back and they all bailed out, the plane flew on and it hit a pylon and then, of course, blew up. And of course, mm. when it exploded, you saw all the framework that I'd seen. You know, and this was to me magic. Do you remember your first responsibilities in your first role in the industry? Yeah, I left art school in 1945, and my dad got me a job at Pinewood. And I remember going over to Pinewood, spending fortunes on the bus to Uxbridge and fortunes on the bus to Pinewood, and I got a job as art department runner, assistant print boy, and. Um, it was 25 shillings a week plus cost of living bonus, which made it up to two guineas. And I was lucky enough to go and work with Teddy Carrick on individual films, and they were then shooting at that time Captain Boycott. And Teddy was a, a real treasure of a man. And Teddy was very nice. He said, look, we'll give you a drawing board, you know, and he would set me things to do. I, I, in other in the other time that I wasn't doing things running around the studio on my bike, I might tell, and also delivering prints with Bill Wooler. It was an antiquated um, print system, um, a dialine prints, and uh, so I, you, they used to be a number marked off when there, um, there was a, always a stamp put on the bottom of the, of the um, drawing, and um, it was all marked off who got it, so we do the number of prints that were necessary, and then I would take it to the appropriate department. What was the industry like for a junior coming coming in at that time? Was it quite welcoming or quite a fierce place to... No, no, they're, they're, they're all nice people, you know. Um, they appreciated that, you know, I was a youngster. I was the only youngster there, you know, in, in, my, in my department. Um, because next door there was there was um, uh, City Guild, and they were... They were gearing up to do Oliver Twist. John Bryan was the production designer. You know, I would wander through and they'd all talk to me, you know, and I, I was always looking to see what, the, what people were doing. You know, John Bryan was amazing, fella, you know, was the, the way they used to come, the, he would design sets. He'd do a, um, a charcoal sketch and uh, then it was given to one of the draftsmen who would then make a model with a little viewfinder and that was how they came to what the set was going to be like, not projecting it like you normally did. But uh, it was, um, you know, another way of doing things. When you were that young print boy, obviously you 
probably didn't guess all of the glamour you'd go on to with all of your large films and the Bond and winning an Oscar. What do you think you would tell yourself, that 20-year-old Peter Lamont, all those years ago, from your position now? Experience you can't buy. Been there, done that. You know, I've had all the, I've had the kicks, you know, uh, not a clip around the arrow, but, um, you know, we, you have to do things. And in those days, you know, <clears throat> we only had a, a party line telephone at home. And I was trying to answer the phone, you know. You know, and you think now, all the gadgets we've got, how the hell do we ever survive? You know, there was a, <clears throat> um, there were no printers. Uh, if you wanted anything printed, you know, the call sheets, they were all rodeoed. You had to speak to the um, production secretary who would then um, type out a skin. And then, obviously, if you're one of the juniors in the production department, you would now go to the rodeo room, put the ink on, put the, the skin around the thing, and then start it, put the paper in. And there would be the, um, call sheets the next day, and they were always delivered onto the floor before everybody wrapped that time. And in those days, everybody started at half past eight. And when I first went to the studios, it was, <clears throat> you finished at half past five, but you worked Saturday mornings. And then it came into 48-hour week, where they divided up into the five days. Then there was a 44-hour week, and then it gradually came down to 40 hours, which was half past eight to half past five five days a week, an hour for lunch. And the next hit was going to be 37 and a half hours, like the French, and now I think they're now down to 35 hours. And, and our lot seem to be ridiculous. They, they seem to work all hours. So what's your opinion on the way that you've worked all those years through the industry and you've seen the hours go up and up and up, uh, you know, as it's changing? How do you feel about that now that it's certainly moving away from that? I think a lot of people don't do their homework. You know, when directors came, when Michael Powell, just he was my favorite director, and now I've got all his books, you know. And his big demise was unfortunately peeping Tom. But if you see it now, it's a you think, what, what was all the fuss about? But it ruined his career. And he used to arrive in his open Bentley in a leather coat, flying helmet, and goggles, and uh, be on the floor at half past eight. At half past five, they wrapped. In those days, if you didn't wrap on time, you didn't just get the quarter. If you set the quarter, there was problems. If he wanted an hour, it's like, oh, my God, catastrophe. And then he would possibly go into the cutting rooms with Thelma Myers and then go home. And it all worked. Everybody, and they went to lunch at half past, half past, well, one o'clock, one to two, or with construction at half past 12 to half past one. But, so, you know, it's all, and I just don't know, you know, when I, just recently, you know, when I finished, I used to say to the kids in the outcome, go home. You know, I'd, I'd go home. You know, this is nothing to do. And somebody, somebody would ring me about half past eight, we've just got the call sheet for tomorrow. I said, well, you, why we stay around for the call sheet? That's, that's ridiculous. You know, in this day and age, you don't have to do it. If I say go home, I mean go home. What you said there reminds me of something that my previous podcast I've had before, uh, my guest Dominic Lavery was talking about you as one of the best bosses he's ever had, the best boss he's ever had. Thank you, Dom. And he was saying, yeah, he's a lovely guy. And he was saying that that's because of your patience and management style. And you've touched on it a little bit there with the way that you treat some of the youngsters. Yeah. What do you think are the most important traits to embody when you are leading a department like that? I'm, I'm the head of the team and you've got to treat your team well. You know, um, my dad would have made a, a good um, publican, but my dad would have never made any money 
But you know, he was people said, "We'll have we'll have a drink for me and stuff like that." And it comes part of the set. I'm sorry, you know. I know a lot of people think I'm a bit too free with you know, people come in, have a cup of tea, you know. Um, the fathers, I always give them coffee and crumpets, and you know, I treat people like human beings. My gardener said last week, "You're the only person who ever does this for us." Well, why not? We're all human beings. They do a good job, and I pay them, and they, you know, I don't know. But, you know, as I say, experience you can't buy. And the biggest thing that did happen to me was going into the services because suddenly I was mummy's boy. I'd never been away from home before. And I'll tell you, it was a bit of a, a, bit, a bit much. Suddenly in that first night in the airman's made you think, oh, my God, what's going to become of me? But, of course, I was quite good at writing and all that. You know, I'd got a, a reasonable skill. And I came the billet orderly and I was starting to organise people, right, we're going to the clothing store tomorrow, this. Right, what's your sizes you want? What's this? So, unbeknown to me, I'm in effect running it. So do you think your career in the army helped you in the film industry after? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, gave you confidence. Because nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to do it yourself. And I would never ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't willingly do do myself. And that includes shoveling shit. And I mean it. I would never ask anybody. If I wasn't happy to do it, I wouldn't ask them to do it. I'm a funny old fart, I suppose, you know. People look like, you know, it's it's an easy touch. I don't think I'm an easy touch. You know, I'm I'm a human being. You know, when I made my speech for the academy, you know, I could I don't get notes out. It's all from the heart. And my last bit was that, you know, um, well, I know the whole thing, and uh, you know, I thank Jim, John, Ray, and my wife for your support. And finally, I am only as good as the people around me, ladies and gentlemen. You are the best. Thank you, and I meant it. That's brilliant. You mentioned the art department team there. And a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are wanting to get into the film industry. Do you have any advice for those young art department people trying to get in? Well, I'll, I'll give you a... We were doing one pitch. I forget who it was. Um, I'm not sure if I was uh, been advanced in production designer or not. And a young man from, I think, Liverpool, Manchester, Tom, he said, could I come? So of course you can. Anyway, I thought he was going to come at half past ten. Anyway, it was a telephone call. He said, no, well, Iver Station. Well, Iver Station is the middle of nowhere. It's not near either, you know. And uh, so I got my car went and picked him up. And um, I spoke to him, and he bought a photo with him and thought it was good. And uh, he said, I worked very hard. I said, Tom, there was one criteria. You've got to have wheels. And he said, if I've got the job, I'll have wheels on Monday. I said, you've got the job. And he came down from Manchester on a scooter. Tom Brown, his name is. Good boy. He's done well. And I forget him. Was, you know, he'd, he'd come down. And well, now he's his he's, he's own boss. But, you know, that's the, <laughs> the thing. You know, I'm, I'm a human being. Your way of running a department sounds a lot more inviting than some of the types you often hear these days. Well, you see, if you if you go into an art department now, you'll find people in a dark room, all got headsets on, all looking at computers. Uh, my uh, my art departments were like that. We all had 
antiquarian drawing boards, T-squares, set-squares and all that. Um, I had lots of light. Although, you know, I've got about four or five angle poises which I used to have around, the, around my drawing board. And um, I'd have music playing, stuff like that. People can just come in. And, you know, everybody else did what they wanted if they had music. I didn't ask them to play loud music, but if they wanted to come and talk to me, come and talk to me. But don't come and talk to me, you know, and uh, I shouldn't really be asking you this. Well, if you, if you shouldn't be asking me, don't ask me, you know. But um, I try to run a nice art department. And I do go out with all the kids at lunchtime. You know, we all, we're, we're a team. You mentioned working as a team there, and I was thinking, looking at your career with how many Bond films you worked on, did that become a little bit of a team, a family of sorts, working with the same people over many years? Well, the thing is, um, with the higher, the higher authorities, you know, um, Harry Cubby and um, well now Barbara Michael, Stanis Appel, um, all those people who were there at that time, they were known as the family, you know, and... As I have progressed, you know, I got to know them. And, you know, I remember um, Cubby. Um, well, if, you, if, I, if I was invited to go up to um, South Audley Street and uh, if this is when Ken was doing a picture, they said, well, we're going to lunch. We go out to the White Elephant. You know, come on with us, you know. And uh, it was great, you know. I, was, I felt great, you know. And... Uh, Covey was a lovely man, but he said, if you've got anything to, think, anything to say, say it. It might be the stupidest thing in the world, but it might be the breath of inspiration. I've never forgotten that. You know, if you've got something to say, say it. And I don't normally do things on telephones, emails, telephones, or anything like that. I go and see people. Because nowadays, it's very simple. If I wanted to cut you off now, I'd just close the, the, um, the iPad. Very simple. But... Uh, you've got to go and talk to people. So many people said, oh, you know, uh, my emails, I've got so many emails and all that, you know, and it's not necessary. Speaking of Cubby, who, just to explain for people listening, is Albert Broccoli, who was the original producer of Bond. Yeah. He comes across as this amazing producer. And one of the things that people have said during the podcast is the nature of producers seems to be changing. What was it about Cubby? What was he like? And why was he so good at what he did? Well, he's a family man. I can remember when Barbara was a little girl, you know, running up the corridor. She's developed into, into like her daddy's. <coughs> the dad was, pardon me. <coughs> and um, his big thing, rather like Roger Moore and also um, Pierce Brosnan, they knew everybody by everybody on the unit by Christian name, including the sweeper up on the, the floor, the, the standby chippy, the lady who brought the tea in and stuff like that, they knew everybody and they always say good morning. You know, and that's an accomplishment, especially Roger. Remember the day he got his gong? I, I saw him in the car. I said, Sir Roger, he said, Peter, for Christ's sake, it's Roger. You know, that's a, that's a true gentleman. And Pierce was the same. Always on time, beautifully um, creased jeans, open-necked shirt, blazer, nice man. How did you first come onto the Bond franchise? Uh, well, at that time, I worked on, I, I'd been to Pinewood for a long time, and uh, uh, a friend of mine, Harry Pottle, he was over at um, uh, Beaconsfield, and uh, I'd done 
I'd been on the pitch called Walsall Toradors with him. And after that, he said, why don't you come over and work with us? So I cashed in my chips at Pinewood and uh, went to Beaconsfield, as it was run by Leslie Parkin and Julian Wintle, who were part of the production teams that Pinewood had at that time. And uh, went on to, to uh, Beaconsfield and I uh, worked on um, Fast Lady, um, This Sporting Life, where I put, I, I was, and uh, what was it? Um, Oh, Cook's Anonymous, sorry, which was Julie Christie's first picture, and she was in Fast Lady. And then there's Sporting Life with um, Richard Harris, Rachel Roberts. Right, what a picture that was. I can remember being on the stage one day, and I don't know if you've seen the film, but uh, there's a bit where um, he's, Richard's looking out the window of his, his room, looking out the window of Mrs. Hammond putting out the laundry. And uh, Lindsay Anderson was saying there, Richard do this. And Richard Harris exploded. The poor continuity girl. <laughs> I thought she was going to explode. <laughs> You've never heard expletives like it. Hammond Man, her name was. She's ne- never heard expletives like it. He went on and on and on. And Lindsay just said, OK, Richard, perhaps we'll try it again. Anyway, he got the shot and all that. And I remember I used to pop into the stage quite often because my office was well, literally 20 steps from the stage. And uh, I often used to sit with Lindsay and talk to him. He said, Peter, he said, uh, if I'm not here on Monday, Carol will take the picture over. I said, oh, why? He said, oh, well, what happened today? Anyway, the end of the week came and uh, Ted Sturgis, who was the first assistant said ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for the week and have a nice weekend and Richard got up and said ladies and gentlemen not a lot of people know this but it's Lindsay's birthday today and Lindsay I'm sorry for what happened during the week here's a birthday party for her and I can't tell you the whole lot came in you name it came in wonderful eats champagne and I thought he, he was a human being you know and Lindsay finished the picture you know and uh it was a picture, you know, it was difficult. But there again, it was part of it. Um, I think after that we did, and Father came to, then we did a, a series called The Human Jungle, which is being aired at the moment, which we're in with Herbert Long. I did those, and we did a thing called Strictly for the Birds. And then, unfortunately, kind of the money ran out at Beaconsfield, and we all got fired. I had got a job. And I was with my friend, Roy Walker. Um, my wife had run his head. I said, would you bring Peter Merton? So I rang Peter Merton. He said, look, um, we've got a, I, I was, in, the, in that time, set decorating. So uh, he said, uh, I said, Peter, he said, look, we've got a set decorating. If you'd like to come and draft for us on this James Bond thing, we'd be delighted. So I said, fine. So he said, well, see you on Monday. So as that, as it happened, would you believe, at the Granada in Slough, they were showing From Russia With Love. So I went and got in the queue with my wife, and so I thought, Jesus Christ, especially with that case, that whole thing, you know. Amazing. And, of course, I arrived there on the Monday morning with my bits and pieces. I said, this is your drawing board. This is it. This is it. This is it. And um, suddenly Ken came in. I've never met him before. I knew, I knew him by reputation. And he gave me a big... Um, wallet folder full of photographs of for exterior of Fort Knox, a blurb that you they gave to give you for Fort Knox and bits and pieces like that. See, see, see what you can do with this. 
This was on Goldfinger, right? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I spent the next four weeks. Um, I had to, well, I had to deduce all the measurements. You know, there was, you can't, uh, the President of the United States can't get into Fort Knox, only the Secretary of the Treasury. So obviously, when Harry and Ken and all those were there, they were all outside the gates. So everything was done outside. And just it was the, just the blurb about sizes that I managed to deduce how big the thing was. Did it with power dividers and stuff like that. So during that time, I drew a quarter-inch model. that did all the uh, did a quarter-inch scale model, plan elevations, um, details, the, uh, the fence, all that, the roads, and uh, I think um, Ken said you better send it off to be um, estimated. Um, and it came back sixty-seven thousand pounds. Thought, Christ, they're going to kill me. <laughs> anyway, Harry. Harry, Guy Hamilton, and Cubby came into the office, had a look at everything, and they said to Guy, can we rationalise anything? So he said, yeah, don't build this side, don't do this and don't do that. They said, okay, they get another estimate. I think it came down to 48,000. They said, okay, do it. Next thing is we're bulldozing the ground up on the lot. There's cement being laid. We've got permission to go into Black Park with um, Goldfort Road, intersected with Bullion Boulevard. Um, all the earthworks have been done, and uh, and Ken breezed in the office one day. He said, uh, "You've been down on stage." So I said, "No." He said, "Well, you want to go down the stage stage, see if you've got it right." So I went down on the stage, the stage to this mammoth facade of Fort Knox. Oh my God! I rushed back to the art department, got all my dividers out, and they say, "But I never heard any laughter or anything." So I said, no. No, I've said, I think it's fine. So about two weeks later, Ken came and he said, just to say those concrete roads up on the thing, I remember when I was there, there was a car. And so he went and, um, again, I didn't hear any laughter or anything, but uh, I um, said to my brother, get your car, we're going up on the lot. The fence wasn't in position, but I knew where all the bits were and where the camera, where the, the camera shots had been taken from. Took up a viewfinder. Put the cars in place. Yeah, it's fine. Nothing wrong with it. So um, a friend of mine phoned me up and said, look, would you like to be set decorator on Danger Man? Right up your street. So I said to Peter, and I've had an offer. He said, oh, don't leave, don't leave. He said, you know, it's a big program here. And I said, well, I think Ken doesn't really like me. He said, every time he says something to you, you bite. He said, we've pissed ourselves here laughing at you, running around like a blue-ass fly. We know everything is okay, but just to see your reaction. <laughs> so I stayed on to the end, and then I was sent for by um, Harry Saltzman. He said, look, we've got a big program. Have a two-week apology on us, and then we're going to do other things. So I went and worked for a friend of mine, Bert Davion, Carry On Clear, and then we um, reassembled in... London when we did Equest Farm. Then one, one day he came into the office and said, uh, right, children, the next one is Thunderbolt. Somebody you better to learn to swim underwater. And of course, that, uh, we were in Grosvenor Gardens and we were just around the, the corner from a swimming pool. So I, at lunchtime, I used to go around and swim. And on Fridays, I used to go to Slough Subacquatuff and they gave me a crash course. And uh, my job was the Vulcan. So when we went out to the Bahamas, I was the, the one designated to be with the, 
Not only the underwater unit, but to build the bloody Balkan as well. You mentioned the travel there. That must be one of the best things about working on Bond. Was there a particular destination that you loved more than others? Well, I went for two weeks to the Bahamas and stayed 14. And I swore when I came back, I would never go to the Bahamas again. And I've been back so many times, it's not true. And it, it was the right place to go. That was the thing. You know, and Casino. We uh, we did start off in South Africa, looking at it. Was it supposed to be the Virgin Islands and Madagascar? Well, you know, we went down to Cape Town. Had a great time there. You know, stayed at wonderful hotels. But it's not, it's not, it's not the Virgin Islands. The palm trees are all wrong. The best beach I saw was at Cape Point. Had beautiful, beautiful sandy beach, blue sea. But it could have been in Scotland, because it was like gorse and there were ostriches running around. And when Martin came down, he said, you know, said, what do you think? And I said, I think we're in the wrong place. I think we either got to rewrite the script about Cape Town, which you'll never get rid of that bloody mountain, or we go somewhere else. He said, where should we go? So I said, the Bahamas. <laughs> and it all worked. You know, not, not, not that I'm some smart ass, but the thing was I'd had the experience of the Bahamas and I knew it would work, especially with the um, – the uh, construction of the, the, the hotel, which was a hotel that had stopped many moons before, and we actually used it for a camera platform on Spire Love Me. It was now been taken over by, it was derelict. It had been taken over by the, um, the um, uh, Bohemian Defence Force, and uh, of course we went there, and uh, I said to, you know, when Martin came out, showed him, I said, you know, it'd be great to have this as a decrepit hotel. He said, oh, yeah, this is great. This will be a building hotel. I remember Michael Wilson and I did measuring. I came back and uh, uh, by um, artist, what was his name? Um, James. Anyway, he did a fly through of the whole thing and showed it to Martin. And they said, all right, that's it. That's what we want. And of course, the the, the, um, hurricane had gone through that neck of the woods um, in New Orleans and pulled to get tower cranes without the question. So eventually, what we had to do, we, we, we took two tower cranes with us, a, a crane to load, the, to, to erect the, the tower cranes, and all the um, steel work. And uh, it all worked. It went out by ship. <clears throat> they cleared the site, and I think there were three or four um, constructions of their um, uh, new steel work. I think they did about four or five days. And of course, the, where we were building became the set. I guess one of the things about filming abroad is it can be a little bit difficult and, and dangerous sometimes. Did you ever encounter any dangers in your travels? Uh, well, I got hijacked in, uh, when we were doing Octopussy. You got hijacked? Yeah. Um, we were down in Udaipur, and um, I was bringing all the flight tickets back to Iris, our um, production manager, and uh, I had them all in my bag. Got on the plane at Udaipur to come up to Delhi and then get the plane that night back to England. Anyway, we went via Jodhpur and I remember the plane wasn't full and I remember sitting there kind of almost dozing. And when we took off, there was a funny door opening from the toilet and into the flight deck. And suddenly the captain came on and said, so, ladies and gentlemen, we are being hijacked to Lahore. And we had train direction and we went to Lahore. 
And it was, um, I, he said, that this is a gentleman here. He, we were in touch with Mrs. Gandhi, where there's Greek um, Sikh separatist. He was released, you know, and uh, he has a gun and a hand grenade. And um, he won't hesitate to use it. Anyway, we got to the hall and we circled over the airfield and there were trucks all over the place. Well, we circled there for about an hour. And then the, the pilot was told to then come in for a full landing, you know, wheels down, flaps, everything. Nobody moved. And of course, then we had to do an aborted landing and flew across the border at Amritsar. We landed there and um, we landed, takes off the runway and everything stopped, run out of fuel. And I can't tell you, when you see where they do sweat on film, you know, it's beads, it's not like that, it's like sheets. Everybody was absolutely covered in perspiration. And as I say, the plane wasn't full. So he, um, there, first off, there were a couple of ladies with babies. And by this time, the Indian Defence Force had now ringed the plane, all with their SMLEs, all with fixed bayonets. And uh, nothing worked on the aircraft. So they had to lower these ladies down with the babies. And then the doors closed again. And then the, this fellow said, right. He looked like one of our production managers. Anyway, he said, right, just get up. Don't take your belongings. Just go to the back of the aircraft. So we all crammed back. And I had this bag with all these bloody flight tickets. And I thought, Christ, if if we live today and I don't take the, the, the tickets back, Iris will kill me or this fellow's going to kill us. <laughs> so anyway, I went back. And I was sitting with a fellow and his wife. And he said, well, we're not talking. He said, what are you doing for a living? So I said, work for James Bond. He said, have you got any of those gadgets? So, <laughs> no. Anyway, he got very hot, very hot. And they moved some of the women to the front. And uh, he helped his wife up there. And he, I saw him talk to the pilot. When he came back, you know, he said, uh, I've spoken to the other fellas. He said, we're, we're going to distract him. We get up and, uh, you know, distract him while they're captain tries to do something and of course he'd open the front door as well to get some ventilation which it was really hot so we all got up and he had this hand grenade still got a pin unfortunately and his pistol and the captain went in back into the flight deck got the fire axe and hit him over the head with it and he reeled round trying to get the pin out the uh, hand grenade uh, reeled round Managed to, he dropped the hand grenade and um, he managed to have grip hold of the frame of the door and, of course, lost his balance and fell out. With that, there was the rat tat tat of machine guns and everybody just fell on the floor. Possibly we thought it was going to impact the body or something and we'd blow up. Anyway, the next thing is we've got the independent, <laughs> uh, the Indian Defence Force <laughs> coming up and getting in. They've got over the over the main planes that got in through the other entrances with their their rifles and bayonets. And they said, well, come down to the back, you know, we'll get you out. So I retrieved my bag. And the only person who got hurt was some fellow got out, went out the front door. And, of course, you know, even on a 737, there's still a way up above, you know, and, of course, holding a bag, all he was all out of balance, fractured his ankle. So the rest of us slid down the main planes, were helped, we went back into the um, uh, the airport lounge and we had a quick debrief and then we were taken to Amritsar to a hotel where we were given other clothes and um, rooms in a hotel. We were having supper and pilot came in and said, ladies and gentlemen, 
um, Mrs. Gaines is sending a new aircraft for us because this one's got to be uh, examined and uh, your luggage is all on board. Um, if you, when you finish your meal, we'll take you back to Delhi. Wow. I mean, that was an incredible story, Peter. I haven't heard many like that before. I think we should probably take a little breather there. How did you first come to meet Jim Cameron? One day I got a telephone call. I think it was uh, Easter, I think it was Good Friday. I had a call to go up to Fox and to meet Jim and her and the girl. And uh, they said, uh, would you be interested in doing Aliens? So I said, of course. And it's funny, I've just got the, the book outside, it's The Making of Aliens, and uh, what I said at the time was all in there. And they said, well, how much do you want for set? So I said, well, what's your budget? They said, 15 million. So I said, 10%. They said, okay, good. How the hell we did it, I don't know. Because at that time, Pinewood was a proper working studio. It wasn't full walled. <clears throat> so all the studio practices had to be adhered to. And, um, and I got the job. And it was, what I later found was I was having a drink with um, <coughs> Jim one night on True Lies. And I said, why did you pick me and not Michael Seymour? He said, well, I chose to say and he was raving about how he got on with, um, you know, in England, and with you especially. That's how I got the job. Could you tell on those, because he must have been quite young then, could you tell there was something about him that you thought he would go on to the great things that he did later? But the one thing I did learn about Jim, there was no animosity. You could animosity. There could be the biggest rows today. Yesterday, it was a new day. And that says a lot because, you know, people can take umbrage or don't. And, of course, I knew the, the Pinewood system, and I used to beg people to kind of work all night and God knows what else. Anyway, we finished it, and, uh, you know, when I saw the video, I was more than, more than happy. Because am I right that this was during quite a difficult period in the film industry? I was out of work for about, well, two and a half, three years. It was that time when BBC got rid of all their designers and um, I was going for films, you know, I was overqualified and asking too much money. Anyway, um, our house was paid for and uh, we had a good life, but we were running out of money. And out of blue, my agent phoned and she said, uh, Jim Carroll would like you to come and work for him again. We're going to send you over a script. There was true lies. So they said, what do you think? So I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. So they said, well, I talked to your agent. So my agent rang me back on the Tuesday, and this is the, 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 the offer. I said, I'm not coming to Los Angeles to work for six days or five days' money. Anyway, they come back two, two days later, and it was better than the pro rata, and they said, come Friday. So I went Friday, had a first-class return ticket. When I got to the airport, there was a town car to take me to... Um, Santa Monica um, Beach Hotel. There was a strong box with the keys of the car and Padema said, see you tomorrow. The only thing was, it was all going to be done on the East Coast because it was an East Coast picture. But Arnold's wife was going to have a, a baby and uh, so it was divided up. Well, True Lies was another famously huge blockbuster. Why was it that you and Jim Cameron had such an affinity working together on those? Well, the thing, the thing was, he said, after Terminator 2, he said to um, his producer, is it Stephanie? And her coordinator had to be going on to my agent and said, and they said, find Peter Lamont. 
Wow. And so, of course, when True Lies finished, again, you know, it was a difficult picture because, you know, what with the, the bloody earthquake and uh, I don't know what else. And um, it was all finished and uh, the, Jim gave me a part at the end and uh, he didn't come, unfortunately, it was, he was ill. And um, he said to me, um, how about the next one? So uh, I said, you know, Jim, it's amazing. The people have said to me, why don't you do my last picture? And I said, they never asked me. I thought it was um, Spider-Man because he had all the drawings and sketches in his office of Spider-Man. But, of course, there was a big legal tangle with um, 21st century films and Marvel comics and all that. Anyway, it was dropped. And, uh, oh, yeah, I was was doing then uh, Goldeneye. And uh, they had um, the premiere in London for True Lies. So we were all invited and uh, went up, met Jim again. And uh, no, I didn't meet Jim. But they had they had all all the actors on the stage. Arnold wasn't there. And um, afterwards, we went to Planet Hollywood. And uh, my daughter's boyfriend at the time, we went up to this big private room they had. And they looked around and said, "Big table over here for Lamont. There's a couple of waiters and a champagne on it. Planet Hollywood." So he went over and sat down, and Jim came straight over. He said, okay, will you? So I said, yeah, of course I will, thinking it's Spider-Man. He said, you'll get a script at the end of the week, but don't take any notice of the title. And he said, Planet Ice. It was Titanic. You've commented that at the end of Titanic, you said to Jim that it was a hell of a trip. Do you think it was the biggest journey on a project you've ever taken? Oh, it was lunacy, (laughs) if you think about it. But we did it. We couldn't have done anywhere else other than Mexico. And we had to build a studio. And the studio, when Fox built the ground, 90 days later, we shot the ship. And we used Churubusco Studios to build the interior sets and then bring them up to Rosarita. It was quite, quite a trip, I tell you. Uh, I was there for three Christmases. And the funny thing was, that first Christmas, we went to the Ivy on the beach. And Jim said he'd just concluded a deal with... Um, Fox for 500 million over five years. Well, you know, when we started Titanic, you know, it, the shit hit the fan. They, they, Fox thought they'd got another clear patch on their hands. You know, Jim said to me, you know, um, we had to make things work. And, you know, they, we were getting what we wanted in Mexico. It's very difficult. You know, the one thing is people won't realize how the Mexicans work. They work fine, but you, there's their way of doing things. You know, I spoke to one of the production managers, a, a lady production manager, uh, from, and she said, what, what can we do to help? So I said, we need to get stuff over the border quick. So she said, I talked to the um, chief uh, customs man in Mexico City. Big mistake. You've got to talk to the man on the border with the old money. And uh, But the fellow who actually built the studio, he was Mexican, he said, I'll have anything over the border within 15 minutes for you. And I'll give you an example. Would you believe you cannot take guns into Mexico? And Barry, our um, prop master, got this beautiful automatic of cows um, uh, bodyguard. It was all engraved. Beautiful. Not allowed to take it in. So we had to find another one. I think it cost four or five thousand dollars to get it done. And the police chief said to me. $400, you can bring it in, take it out when you finish. But no, so, you know, they don't like that. They think it's too corrupt. 
but that's you know that's the way things are done. But anyway, it all everything worked, and uh, we did it. We did have one funny incident because the stern of the ship, all that bit where it was going up in the air, was all shot before it was on the ship, and uh, we had two days to get it onto the ship when we we're going to do the um, departure. So the first day we actually got from A to B, we got onto the stern of uh, Titanic. And of course, then it was all the kind of putting it together, making it. And Jim came up that night and it was lovely weather. And he said to me, anything I should be aware of? I said, yeah, the paint not might, might not be dry. And uh, anyway, I can't tell you. <laughs> Evening came, there was a storm, there was rain. And this is where the Mexicans are so good. You, you you go and rattle them up, and the whole lot came out, everybody. They got tarpaulins, they got dryers, they got everything. Anyway, about 5 o'clock in the morning, the sun came out. Everything was fine. Jim came up and said, great job. Anything I should say? Anything I should know? I said, yeah, the paint's not dry. And all the extras came over and leant over there. And they've got white, white, white paint on their clothes. And everybody laughed. And that was, you know, great. On Titanic, it was such a huge build. And I know it went a bit over budget and things like that. And you, you mentioned it was lunacy. Was there a feeling that it was going to be a huge movie? And in a way, I guess it kind of had to be. Well, I left the birth on the third Christmas. And uh, they'd been shooting overnight. And I'd got myself packed up. So I'd go back to Los Angeles on the way home. And I went and found Jim. He gave me a hug and said, uh, been quite a trip, hadn't it? So I said, yeah. He said, gave me a hug and he said, see you at the Academy Awards. That is very cool. Of course, when we went to the Academy Awards, I can't tell you. Jesus Christ. My whole family were there. And um, it happens that um, every other year, after uh, the first awards, which are for um, supporting actors, it comes either director of photography or production design. Well, that one, it was Russell. So it was there. He was the first one. Of course, then we went on, and I think we won all the um, uh, technical ones. There had been two, two or three breaks, you know, um, with um, a message from your sponsors and all that. And uh, then it's now coming down. The next one's going to be production design. And Billy Crystal came on and said, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, it's the 70th anniversary, and we've, got, we've gathered all the stars who are still living to celebrate the 70th anniversary. <laughs> oh, right. So we've been there for nearly three hours. Anyway, that all finished. Meg Ryan came onto the stage, and the only film I was really frightened of was Kundun. And I said to my um, agents, I said, you know, I said, don't worry about it. It's beautiful, but it's boring. <laughs> so anyway, Meg Ryan came on, and she, she went through the whole thing. And, of course, Titanic was last with her tea, and she opened the envelope. I said, Peter Bunt, Michael Ford, Titanic. Oh, relief, relief. And uh, that was it. I've got it. I've got all my, all, everybody I've worked with won one, and now I've won one myself, which was great. How did it feel to be that little print boy from England standing up on that stage all those years later? Okay, so the only thing that did slightly niggle me, I've never been a member of BAFTA, and we had... 14 nominations, and we've got nothing. We didn't win a thing. I do have um, uh, one of their masks, and because I was one of the kind of uh, people who 
uh, got the first one. It was a Trichicunliff mask. And I remember, um, <clears throat> who was it? I was in Morris and somebody came to see me and they had this plastic one, Ronnie Udell, construction manager. They had this one made of fiberglass. And they said, what do you think of that? I said, if you could go to me, I'd throw it at you. He said, all right, smart ass, what would you do? So I went and saw this father of this friend of mine, um, Harry Pottle. He had a foundry in uh, West Drayton called New Pro Foundries. I took it over and I said, what can you do with this? So I did one in bronze and we had it polished. We had it put it on a, a, um, an oak block with a little plaque. And they liked it so much, they ordered 200 of them immediately. I don't know if they still do it. Anyway, many years later, as I was finishing my, uh, well, my job, the fellow who was now running um, uh, New Pro Foundries came over and saw me, Mr. Chips. He said, oh, by the way, what shall I do with this? And it was the original. So I have the original now mounted on a block with a little plaque on it. It said, Titanic non-award, the one that got away. How does it feel yourself that your work has changed culture? So like millions of people can reference the Titanic stairs or we haven't spoken about it yet, but you helped design the golden gun. How does it feel that anyone can say that in the world and people know what they're talking about? Yeah, we did it in Oak. And people said to me, that's stupid. So I said, why? I said, the big thing is, if you get an inferior material and you make it look like Oak, it costs you bloody fortune in labour. You pay a bit more for the material if you've got the real material. And believe me, when the Mexicans polish things, they do it beautifully. That You should have seen that ship. It was something to behold. Was there one bit about it that you were most proud of, whether it was a big thing or a small thing? I liked the boiler room. Jim said to me, I want Dante's Inferno. I said, we're five boilers wide, but we haven't got enough room for five, so we had two and a half. And we mirrored it because we did some mirroring on aliens, which he never forgot. How these Mexicans got this bloody great mirror, and I don't know. Anyway, Tommy Fisher, who was special effects, he did these furnaces beautifully. You know, I can't tell you. My um, set decorating rifle had got real steam coal and, and all that. And, of course, it was hot. And um, there was a patina, you know, with all these fellows there shoveling coal. And suddenly you've got those uh, kind of, white lines going up into the nostrils where they were breathing, you know. And um, everybody said, well, that's us over there. So Jim said, how do you know it's us? That's the other side of the ship. You have a look at it. and uh, it's, it's a mirror one. It was good. If you had to go back to relive one particular movie that you had the best time on, is there one that stands out in your history? I'd like to say, oh, I'd like to... You know, I've done a lot of nice things, you know. You know I was fortunate um, working with Martin Campbell. We reinvigorated the bond with the new bond on Goldeneye. And then we went back to square one with Casino, with Daniel, with again with Martin, and we reinstalled the new bond. Were you involved in those conversations? Because I know it got grittier. Were you involved in all that? No, no, no. No, we used to have, you know, talks. The scriptwriters would come in and ask ideas, you know, how we can do, how we can do that, you know. But um, <clears throat> what people don't realise that when we did Goldeneye, we went to six or seven different places before we ended up at Leavesden. And then the deal had to be done 
And then we had to convert it into a studio because there were two factories there, but it was better that we use factory two. This is really interesting because for anyone who doesn't know, what you're talking about is how you were the ones who first kind of built up Leavesden Studios, which is where Warner Brothers now are in the UK and made all of the Harry Potters. Yeah. And um, so that had to be converted into offices. Well, offices were, were, were there because, in effect, at the top floor was uh, the director and um, art department. Then as you came down the next flight, there was production. But then the bottom was catering. And then off on, on the other side, there was all the other ancillary ones, makeup, hair, dressing rooms and all that. Then we had to build, I think we built in that building five, four or five stages. And, uh, and of course, what people don't realise, that's going on. We've got a script. And we're now, I, I think I visited Switzerland three times. We went to Russia twice. We went to Puerto Rico twice. We went to... Um, nice, oh no, um, uh, Monte Carlo, a couple of times, and also went down to France from uh, Lyon down to Gap, and then down to Erespatial. You know, this is all trying to get the the, the, the place up and running, and uh, the, the location is set. As it happened with Puerto Rico, it's great because. Um, Friends of mine have been with me uh, on Titanic. They're American, so it's uh, American territory. Although it's not a state, they could just come in and do the job without work permits, which was great. Plus, the fact I met them again, you know. Now, to finish up on Red Carpet Rookies, I like to ask my own version of the In the Actors Studio questionnaire. So it's just a quick fire, so say whatever pops into your head, Peter. The first question is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Don't attempt something if you know you can't do it. Be, be up front. Because I, I've, I've never had to say I can't do it, but that would be one of the things if it's impossible. Nothing's impossible given time. But with Titanic, you know, as I say, from the time they, they bought the ground, and 90 days later, we shot the ship. And it was through a great team of men and women. Um, we had one team down in uh, Churubusco building the interior sets, which we're going to bring up. We built three stages, one with a huge tank. And um, then obviously the, the whole lot with the, the, um, and all the ancillary things that went with it. You know, it's... Um, Incredible. Yeah, it was. Number two, do you have a favourite film? My favourite film is of all time is uh, Matter of Life and Death. Beautifully shot. And I watched it the other day, would you believe? Yeah. Very cool. Number three is what, when you were working, gave you a reason to get out of bed for an early call time and go to set? I used to enjoy going to work, to tell you the truth. There was only one time that I've ever wanted to stay in bed and cover my head with the sheets so that was on aliens was it was getting so difficult we we ran out of money and it was getting really difficult and um i was up in when we did true lies we started with the tasker suite of the tasker house which they rehearsed on for two weeks and uh, then they shot it for two weeks so the next thing was the the men's washroom in um washington and uh, it started off small, and it got bigger and bigger. And uh, it was all uh, glazed tiles, 
ceramitized art. You know, and all real, you know, unfortunately, all the stores you could you could buy off the thing. And we it got bigger and bigger. And I remember um they when they finished there, they they were going to shoot it in two days. Well, ten days later, they're still shooting. And Russell Carpenter came on the foot on the floor one day, he put his arm around my shoulder and said, Know how you felt, because I told him about um, the aliens, how I wanted to cover my head with the sheets. You know, because he was the deep head, it was bloody difficult, you know. Number four is which job in the industry would you have done if it wasn't for any of yours? No, funny enough, I always wanted to go to the camera, and the th- thing was, you used to have to go and see a fellow called Frank Campley, Frank Campley to get short ends or something, and he, if he wanted to, get you as a clapper loader. But uh, anyway, um, I think once I started at Pinewood and, uh, you know, I tried to character them, but they were so good that I thought, you know, um, you know, it's a, it's um, a job on the, you're on the floor, you don't go out anywhere, right? People, you know, they go abroad, but they never see what we see. You know, they just take me and say, oh, weren't you, weren't you how lucky to find this? Amazing. Uh, number five. Which person, living or dead, would you have loved to have worked with before you retired that you never did? Alfred Jungle would have been amazing because I, I was a bit too young. But he was amazing what he did. And uh, one of his protégés was um, Elliot Scott. And I, I still see his son every probably every other week at the pub. And his, 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 his uh, dad was clever. Yeah, when you look back and you say about other films... Another one stands out. I still don't know how Ridley Scott did um, Blade Runner. If you think that the age you have now, the age that he had, it was an amazing picture. So you would have liked to have worked with Ridley? Yeah. And then the last thing I'd like to ask you, Peter, is I like to ask people, when they won their Academy Award, who did you thank and why? Well, you know, um, what, what I said that night was... Uh, the day I left Titanic, Jim said to me, it's been quite a trip, and believe me, it was. I said, Jim, John, Ray, and my wife, thank you for your support. But finally, ladies, um, finally, I'm only as good as the people who work with me. And ladies and gentlemen, you were the very best. Thank you. And that's it. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any notes. I knew what I was going to say. It was nothing is worse when people get notes out. And it's, you know... I, I was frightened I wasn't going to win it. I'd been there three times before. We, did, we, we were supposed to be hands-down winners, and it's a bit of a blow when you don't win it. So you think people are pretending when they they look all modest and, you know, when other people win? Well, you get 30 seconds. When you when you, you go to the te- thing and it said, finish, 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 and there's a, a clock with 30 going down. I did it in 17 seconds, so my... Um, set decorator could say something about his experience that's amazing thank you so much for joining me today peter your advice has been incredible and thank you so much for talking to me my pleasure now is the time i would usually play my red carpet rookies outro and pitch all my social media handles but for today we will simply be played out by the soundtrack to peter's favorite film powell and pressburger's 1946 romance a matter of life and death if you enjoyed today's episode please share with a friend thank you